Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better or for the worse, or still to be determined, as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please help us continue by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page, or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. After more than a year of closed campuses and online-only learning, California's higher education system has been completely changed in a way that will persist even after students head back to class in real life for the new school year. The most significant change has been to instruction and learning, with colleges still deciding the right blend of online, in-person, and hybrid classes. But there are other changes coming too, like how to better help students with their mental health, financial aid, and food and housing needs, how to make campuses get more flexible in the way they operate, and even more important than ever, how to get California's large population of lower-income students all the way to graduation with a college degree and good job prospects. Join us as we talk with two college students and a newly appointed university president about which changes are needed the most and what our state's higher education system needs to do in order to become the best in America again. In part one, it's a conversation with Saul Jimenez Sandoval, the brand new president of Fresno State University, about how he's creating a new post-pandemic type of school. In part two, we talk with two college students, Stephen Kodur, who just graduated from Reedley Community College, Josh Lewis, who will be a senior at UC Berkeley, about what students want for post-pandemic learning and what they're asking college leaders, the state legislators, and us Californians to do to make that happen. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers, and thank you for tuning in today. So I'm going to take you back 60 years to the year 1960. That is when the state legislature passed a major groundbreaker called the Donahoe Act. This legislation included a 246-page report called A Master Plan for Higher Education in California. In this report were three defined missions for each of the state's higher education pillars. The University of California was now to admit the top 12.5% of high school graduates. The California State Universities would draw from the top third of remaining high school graduates. The other students could enroll in junior colleges, later renamed community colleges, to get associate degrees, and then graduates could apply for transfer to the four-year colleges. Around this time, the new California policy of no tuition was extended to all public colleges and universities statewide. Also, the master plan promoted state-funded student scholarships through a state agency created back in 1955 called the California Student Aid Commission. The master plan gained a lot of national attention because it combined access to higher education with affordability and choice, making college accessible to a lot more people. And there was funding for it. As part of passing the Donahoe Act, the California state government approved $1 billion in funding for higher education facilities. That's equivalent to about $10 billion today. Because of these actions, 
California's higher education system was soon considered the best in the country and an American dream for working class students looking for a college degree, good career prospects, and setting the foundations for a solid future and quality of life. So, 60 years later, in 2020, the coronavirus forced our higher education institutions into triage mode, and it left students, especially lower income students, with difficult decisions. But now that we're reopening up, how has this pandemic changed our view of higher education? How a college campus should operate, how students should learn, how much should a four-year degree cost to get, and who pays for it? And can this past year serve as a prompt for the state legislature, college leaders, students, and advocates to develop a vision, just like the Donahoe Act back in 1960, for the future of higher ed in California that could serve again as a model for the rest of the country? So that's the topic of this episode, and we're going to discuss it with a few people who are fully invested in that mission of improving our higher education system. First, with the new president of a California university, and then in part two, with two students who attend California colleges and belong to organizations that advocate for students and getting them the education and amenities they need to graduate and succeed. So I'd like to welcome now Saul Jimenez Sandoval, the newly appointed president of Fresno State University. He takes over for Joseph Castro, who moved on earlier this year to become president of the entire California State University system. Saul has strong Central Valley roots and pride, and he's a great example, I think, of what the Donahoe Act intended for allowing California students to make the most of our public education system. So he arrived in the Central Valley from Mexico when he was nearly 10 years old, and he worked at his father's small farm in Fowler, a town just down the road from Fresno. He graduated as an honor student from Fowler High School. Then he earned dual bachelor's degrees in history and Spanish at UC Irvine, and then a master's and doctorate in Spanish literatures at the same school. He came back to the Central Valley and he taught at Fresno State for 15 years as a professor of Spanish and Portuguese. Then he became the school's vice president of academic affairs and he officially got the top job as president just recently on May 19th. So congratulations, Saul, and thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much. I'm very pleased to be here. So you are officially brand new in this job, and uh, in just a few months, a new school year is going to begin at Fresno State. What do you see or what will you make the school year look like in terms of education, uh, a, a hybrid, virtual, in-person? What are, what are classes in education overall going to look like at Fresno State? Right. So we're back face-to-face uh, -face 75% uh, in fall 2021. Uh, which means that the other 25% uh, will be a combination of virtual, synchronous, asynchronous, and then also the traditional classes that we've always had online, which uh, also include classes you know, that are embedded within uh, the community uh, through various, uh, uh, you know, just majors that we have that, that need that, that, that element. So 75% uh, face-to-face, and we really want to create or recreate uh, what the university environment is all about. And the university environment is about the experience of being with each other. And it's about the experience of learning together and then coming up with solutions together as well. It's not just that we go to the university, we acquire knowledge, and then we leave with a piece of paper that says, you know, we're certified. It's that we go to the university and in interacting with each other in a very you know, meaningful way, we learn about ourselves and each other. 
and we also learn about the world and we learn about uh, the possibilities of this world and how it is that my specific talents are going to fit into furthering our world in the future as well once I graduate. Um, so we want to recreate uh, the experience of coming together, learning together, producing knowledge together and assimilating knowledge together as well. That really is the core of you know, the university experience along with a various you know, set of experiences that are akin to the university as well, such as clubs, organizations, you know, going to football games, uh, you know, just experiencing life, life as, 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 uh, as students and you know, what, what it all means uh, to be with each other. So we want to repopulate the campus with all of its spaces available. What we found out during, the, during this pandemic is that our students, you know, the greatest need of our students was space. Can I access the library? Can I go to the library and get a space in which I can focus and concentrate because at home there's, you know, there's too much happening. Maybe there was too much noise or maybe I don't have the privilege of having my own room with reliable internet on top of everything, right? So our students really wanted, they wanted to access the campus because they wanted to be here in order to study on the one hand, but then on the other hand, they really wanted to be with each other as well. They wanted those informal conversations in the hallway with each other and with their professors as well, because that harbors a sense of belonging, a sense of community and a sense of learning ultimately as well. And, and that view of campus, because I was going to ask you physically what the campus will look like yeah. as it opens up and uh, what amenities you will provide more of and maybe reduce. Uh, another question to tie in there along with that is the use of technology uh, on campus, because I, I was talking to a few students who said they liked that because everything had to go virtual, everything had to be 24-7. You couldn't, you couldn't right. go to the office at 8 a.m., to get yeah. whatever forms you needed, but that made it more, it made it easier uh, because it was 24 seven. And I'm wondering if you might emphasize more of that uh, virtual get things here rather than have to, you know, show up at 8 a.m. at an office that's only open until four. Right, so, so some processes will remain, you know, in the virtual realm. If there's a form that needs to be filled out and if there's a form that needs to be signed by someone, we don't necessarily need the wet signature anymore. We can facilitate that to our students, uh, you know, that the processes will, will now be more streamlined as it were. Um, so that part of the bureaucratic part of the university, I think we will learn from the pandemic and we will streamline a lot of, a lot of that. Uh, but the, the other part, of course, you know, the part of being with each other and learning together and then really moving together as a community is the part that our students really missed a lot. Um, and those, of course, those are the areas that we will focus and, and strengthen moving forward. One other question that I wanted to ask you about uh, right up top is mental health mm -hmm. uh, issues and, um, and care. Obviously that yeah. was such a big issue, especially for students. And I'm wondering again, like what is the pandemic if it informed you of the importance of um, uh, mental health care and access to mental health um, needs, um, what what do you think Fresno State will do differently going forward um, for with helping students in that area? I think now more than ever, the campaign for mental health will be front and center. 
whereas before we were, you know, pretty consistent in letting our students know that we had a, a broad range of mental health uh, services for them and that uh, we wanted them to, to make use of these. Now we are focused on the perception of mental health and what mental health represents to our students. Whereas most of our students uh, perceive that mental health um, is not an asset, but on the contrary, it's a deficiency. Uh, if somebody goes to a mental health practitioner, uh, sometimes they perceive that, that they're being deficient, right? That there's something wrong with them and they need to get fixed. And it takes a lot to come to that realization, right? Of saying, I need to go in because uh, I, need, I, need, I need fixing, right? We wanna switch that around and really say, mental health is an opportunity that represents doors uh, of, you know, you're becoming uh, fully with yourself. Um, it's an opportunity to really see how you deal with issues, how you process anxiety, how, how you move forward through with issues or problems. And it's an opportunity to learn tools that you can then later on in life apply. And then these tools then will help you cope with all kinds of situations, whether they be personal or professional. Um, so it's also a process of learning about yourself and then of learning how it is that you fit into the greater world. And it's also a realization that we're not perfect, but what makes us so unique as human beings is that we try our best to improve each and every day in this process of becoming yourself, you know, as you go along life. So mental health more as um, a tool or an opportunity to discover new ways of figuring out, you know, about yourself in the world, rather than mental health as this uh, issue that has to be fixed because there's something, you know, deficient about you. So we want to take away that stigma that a lot of people have about mental health. And we want to really showcase how mental health uh, is really going to um, empower the individual to be more successful in life, both academically, professionally, and then on a personal level as well. And even before the pandemic, as you know, there were so many stressors that uh, college students, especially I, I, I feel like at the uh, CSU level and community college level, they were dealing with, I mean, there's um, insecurity, food insecurity, right? Sure. And, and the cost of housing in general, yeah. uh, all these factors, um, even more so now. And I'm wondering now when you're in your new position, obviously you have a lot to to, to tackle, but those are big issues. Helping students uh, get the amenities they need yeah. along with the education. Right. Uh, so what are you thinking about uh, helping students with those, you know, getting food and housing uh, and finance? Well, actually, I'm going to say financial aid for part B of this question. Sure. But yeah, just getting students through the day and so that they, they you know, their well-being and they're, you know, a little more secure. Sure. So I'll tell you two examples uh, that we have at Fresno State. Uh, over the summer, um, actually over, the, over the, the spring semester, last semester, I saw that mental health was, was a big issue for our students. And then based on that, I brought together a broad coalition of individuals from across campus that included 
you know, the three basic groups of individuals, it was students, it was also faculty, and it was also staff. And they were all focused on mental health. And we called it the Alegria Mental Health Task Force. And Alegria in Spanish and in other Romance languages means joy. Um, so as to, you know, sort of like associate mental health with a sense of liberation of, you know, within yourself, of you know what happens when you have the right tools in order to cope with uh, again anxiety and you know stresses and everything else. So that's one of the resources that we have that are going to really roll out uh, before our students um, all of the all of the various services that we have for our students in the in the student health center on the one hand. But then on the other hand, what we found out is that what our students were really missing. Uh, were events, just informal events in which we gather together and we speak about whatever it might be. So we have had, for example, an event on uh, pets at Fresno State, right? Like, you know, tell us about your pet or, you know, who is your pet or, you know, whatever else. So whether it be a dog or a cat or something, you know, less traditional, like a bearded dragon or whatever else, you know, we will speak about this as a way of getting to know each other more on the human level rather than, you know, always the professional level that has to be front and center. Um, so that's, that's one of like the, one of the events that, that we had, but we, wanna, we want to roll out more events like these. Um, you know, you were speaking about how will the university look like in the fall. One of the events that the Alegria Mental Health Task Force is thinking about is why don't we have an ice cream day? And we produce incredible ice cream at Fresno State uh, from uh, the milk that our cows produce here that, you know, is based primarily on the work and labor and science of our students. So why don't we celebrate what we produce by coming together, having ice cream, and just, just having an informal setting where we just say, I'm just going to have ice cream. Can we have a flavor of the month, for example, moving forward, in which we can just gather together and eat ice cream and, you know, just get to know each other uh, in that sense. Um, so these are the type of events that we're moving forward with on the mental, uh, the mental uh, side, right? With the basic needs side, uh, we have the fortune right now of having an endowed a pantry for our students. The Amendola family endowed our, our student cupboard at Fresno State. And we're also working really hard to let our students know that in their accessing the cupboard, there's no stigma in that. There's no stigma in saying, I'm gonna go and get, you know, a pound of garbanzo beans, you know, or a pound of uh, lentils and, you know, or whatever it might be, uh, pasta or tomato sauce or whatever it is, you know, for dinner. There's absolutely no stigma in it. It is just a service that we provide to our students so that our students can then be able to thrive academically and socially at Fresno State, which is what it's all about. So again, it's presenting these opportunities for our students as a way to let them know this is part of the journey to success academically and socially at Fresno State, the mental aspect of it. And then of course, you know, the basic needs aspects uh, aspect as well will also be there. Okay. And then, and to that part B question about financial aid, I, sure. I know a lot of it's um, discussed and legislated up at the top, you know, state and federal level. But I'm wondering, you know, what can what can CSUs do more to help uh, students financially? 
Yeah, back, you know, um, 40 years ago when the Pell Grant was first brought in, the Pell Grant used to cover about 70 percent, 70 to 80 percent. I can't remember the, the exact percentage of a student's education. Uh, nowadays, it's dropped to about 40 percent of it. Um, and, you know, that is that is very important for us within the CSU, uh, considering that 73% of our students are Pell Grant recipients. That's a, that's a pretty sizable number at our university. Um, so uh, financial aid is absolutely an important and essential, I would say, a service to our students. And we're doing everything possible right now to let our students know that we will absolutely um, you know, help them and we will absolutely support them along the way. Um, we have been fortunate that uh, federal, the federal government has given us grants uh, to our students and we, we gave out, for example, $16.4 million about eight months ago. We just gave out $25 million uh, right after spring break in uh, spring 2021. We are poised to give uh, $23 million in fall of 2021 and $23 million in spring of 2022 to our students in an equitable way. Uh, meaning that we know that you know we have students who are great need, but not all the money is going to be focused on you know these students with the great need. We also know that we have a pretty good chunk of students in the middle that are not neither great need nor you know are they you know very well off. So th these these middle ground students will also receive a pretty sizable amount of money uh, for fall and for the spring uh, moving forward as well. And this is done primarily at Fresno State as an encouragement to our students to finish their education, but also to let them know that, that we're aware of you know, the needs that they have. Uh, and these grants will not form part of their package of financial aid. It will go beyond the package of financial aid that they will traditionally receive at Fresno State. So now thinking about students in high school who are looking at colleges and where to apply, what they wanna do, I was when I was researching this topic, I came across something that was, I guess, shocking to me. Maybe it shouldn't be, but in a public policy in, uh, uh, institute of California, uh, they had a report saying most California ninth graders won't obtain a bachelor's degree. I guess it's in the next few years, so that means that that many don't have one now. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do to make that happen? I know that's such a big that's such a big task, but I feel like there's a lot of people who individually just you know, what can I do? What can I help? Um, how can I help change that? Um, is there something that individuals who aren't state legislators or college administrators do to, to move that needle? So we have seen a decrease in the amount of applications to Fresno State uh, over the past uh, two or three years, actually. And so this has been under, you know, our radar for quite some time. It's been concerning because um, uh, using data from the Fresno Regional Data Sharing Collaborative, uh, Fresno State did a, did a pretty intensive research. Um, and uh, we put through the National Student Clearinghouse a request for the last four years, uh, for the last four classes of Fresno Unified graduating classes. So from 2017 through, two, uh, through 2020. And over this period of time then we learned that there has been a decrease in Fresno State enrollment. Uh, for example, 
of with 25% of the graduating class of 2018 enrolled at Fresno State compare, compared to only 18% uh, uh, enrolled uh, in the 2020 graduating class. So from 25% in 2018, we went down to 18% in 2020, which is very concerning uh, to us at Fresno State and also within the community colleges, because this also impacted the community college in a pretty dramatic way. And that's important to Fresno State and to the region, because right now about 45% of all of our incoming class is a transfer, a transfer students. So the community college is a, it's a, it's a critical uh, partner uh, for Fresno State uh, during these times. So over the last four years then, we have seen then this decrease in this percentage of Fresno Unified School District graduates who have enrolled in higher education. Um, and what we've done then is we've analyzed what we have been doing uh, in the past, you know, the past years. Uh, no longer can we just simply say, our students will come to us and then they will just simply apply to Fresno State. We now have to go to our students and directly engage with them about the value of higher education. What is it that Fresno State represents to them and to their families and to the region as a whole as well? Um, this is more concerning, this data is more concerning because while all race and ethnic groups enrolling in college uh, uh, were enrolling in college at lower rates, this decrease was more pronounced in students of color. Um, and as everyone knows, now Fresno is a minority majority uh, region. Um, and that's, that's, you know, so that's very concerning to us uh, at Fresno State. Um, so based on this, then what are we doing at Fresno State? Even though we have had the largest incoming classes in fall 2020, and we're expecting, you know, to maintain this high level of enrollment in fall 2021, what concerns us more than anything is that the number of students applying to Fresno State has decreased over the past uh, three years, more or less. And we're afraid that in the future, this decrease in applications will finally or will eventually represent a less than ideal incoming class, both for the freshmen and also, of course, for the transfer students. What we're doing then, we're partnering up with Fresno Unified and also with the other uh, districts around us. We are now going into the high schools and we're now having the high schools directly interact with our professors and our students so that our high school students see our professors and our students and then they're able to interact with them on the basics, right? What do you do? What kind of research do you conduct? What's the value of your research as a professor or as a student? What about you, the student? What, what do you think you'll do after college? What will you become? What's the future after college look like? So that the students in the high school setting are able to put two and two together and they're able to see, if I go to college, then I'll be able to become X, Y, or Z within these professions, right? Or if I want to become, let's say a police officer, if I go to college, get a degree in criminology, then I'll be able to enter the police force, you know, in this level rather than this level, or I'll be guaranteed a position here, you know, as an entering accountant rather than just working a job, you know, that that does not require uh, a college degree. So that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, though, is what do we do as a region 
where are we going as a region as far as the future of Fresno is concerned? And how is it that a region with more college graduates is more successful in the long term rather than a region with less college graduates? What happens to innovation? What happens to economic growth to a region that has more college graduates with more ideas around? What happens, for example, to a region that has a lot of college graduates and suddenly they're coming up with startups? You know, startups are huge in our economy nowadays or with small businesses, which are the backbone of any healthy economy. We cannot all depend on the big businesses to sustain the region because that's, that's, not, that's not the best way to diversify our economy moving forward. What happens to industry? How do we attract industry from the outside? We attract it by saying we have a population that is ready to take on whatever type of high-skilled jobs uh, you are offering. So we become more competitive as a region as well, the more college graduates we produce uh, in total. That's interesting I, about that. You as a professor of languages and, and sure. humanities, you see the need for uh, jobs and skills and training. Um, Absolutely. I, I know California has that cradle to career approach that they want yeah. to get that going. Um, I feel like there's also discussion though about you know the role of, of college um, in terms of, is it just getting people on the career track? What about you know thinking and uh, analytical skills? Where do you see the balance of going to college to expand your mind sure. and or not versus, but and going to, to school to get a degree and a good paying job. Right, so, so I think it's both, right? I think we don't have to do one or the other, like you said. I think it's, it's a combination of both. And this combination comes through the following. College represents to the everyday individual a golden opportunity to acquire social analytical knowledge-based skills that will make that person more competitive in any economy moving forward. That's it. Whatever you learn in college, whatever knowledge you acquire, whatever experiences are under your belt, you know, through um, your interaction or participation in a, in a club, for example, if you become the secretary or the vice president or the president of a club, how does that transfer over directly into the future possibilities of your becoming a manager uh, within your own field or, you know, having aspirations in the future uh, when once you enter, you know, that entry level job and then, you know, moving forward uh, and skilling up uh, in your job. So college provides you with a set of tools that allow you to visualize creativity beyond the box, creativity beyond, you know, the everyday so that you're able to say to yourself, I'm at an entry level job right now. That's right. But in two or three years, I'm going to be up here. And then after that, I'm going to be right up here, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, I think um, we need to um, value what college represents, not so much for the skills that you acquire, but for this um, sort of like analytical thinking, personal, interpersonal skills that the individual will have uh, in the long term. I think that's, that's really critical. We as human beings are successful uh, based on knowledge, absolutely. I have to know what I'm talking about, you know, when I talk about budgets. But at the same time, I have to have those personal, interpersonal skills that transfer over to communication skills, to team building skills, to visualizing the future 
right? And being able to articulate this future uh, with my team as well. So moving forward together by letting our students know, by letting our population know what the value of college is, both on a very personal level, but also on a very transferable, you know, professional level. I'm, I'm going there for both, not just for one. So on that note about, you know, running, running a, a college is kind of like running a, a business, a startup. Sure. You, you yeah. have a budget and you have a business plan. And I'm wondering now, even with the, even before the pandemic, there was so much attention on uh, how much California, the state, could give the colleges in terms of funding and what other ways are there to keep uh, colleges going? You know, is it bringing more out of state students in raising tuition overall, cutting services, uh, you know, diversifying in some ways. Mm -hmm. So now that you're in that position where you are in charge, what, what things do you see uh, should be done more of less of maybe some groundbreaking innovative way to run Fresno State, you know, efficiently and provide your customers with what they need. Sure. And I'll talk to, you know, your first set of the question was, college is a business. Uh, we run like a business and we do run like a business uh, in the sense that uh, businesses are always adapting. They're always innovating. They're always cutting edge. It's a successful business will not say the following. I have a successful product and I'm done with it because from now on the customers will buy this successful product, you know, for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That never happens. Any successful uh, business out there will have one successful product and immediately they will say what? What is our next iteration? What is the next successful product that we will have so that we can re-engage the, the clientele in the future? And how can we diversify our products so that we can create an ecosystem in which the brand name has credibility? It has credibility not on the short term, but on the long term as well. The same thing happens with the university. The university teaches skills, but it teaches skills that have to be, that have to be updated, up-to-date skills, and also teaches skills that have to be visualizing the future continuously. So what do we do about innovation at Fresno State that is so important? How do we envision the future right now in a way that is not siloed? How do we say, for example, we are known for our agriculture, the Jordan College of Agricultural Sciences and Technology, right? How do we branch out and partner in synergistic ways with Lyle's College of Engineering? because engineering and agriculture have always gone together. The best farmers have always been the best engineers because they have always had to figure out things in the farm that are not going well. And they have always had to invent things, you know, that, you know, make it go well in the farm, right? So, and then how do we then layer these two very uh, uh, tightly connected uh, uh, disciplines to business? So how do we create the synergy between these three? How do we come up then with new ways of empowering our community? Can we combine, for example, health management? So health and human services on the one hand, on the other side, you know, the management aspect of it that we find in the business world. 
how do we come up with a way that we can empower our criminology students who are going into the police force with a certificate of empathy by coming up with you know, classes in art and classes in the humanities? How can we teach them the value of literature so that once they're out there in the workforce as police officers, they're able to empathize with whomever they, they come across and say, you are a fellow human being and I, as a police officer, am your servant, right, in the greater scheme of things. So how can we innovate in a way that we break down the silos that our disciplines have created over the years and really perceive knowledge as a holistic approach to becoming a professional in our lives? So last question for you is advice you would give to students, high school juniors uh, and seniors, you know, starting in August, September, uh, and their parents who are thinking about where to apply for college, especially those who may have similar backgrounds to you from the Central Valley, finances, you know, especially sure. with the pandemic or just, you know, what advice would you give to them based on when you were a young student uh, looking at high school and, you know, what the future would hold? Right, and, and I'll go back to that, you know, that previous question that you had about funding for colleges and universities. I would say that the greatest investment that the state can have is investing in colleges and universities. For every dollar that the state invests in Fresno State, we return $7 on the value to the greater community, $7 on the value. If we see the greater impact of the CSU uh, as a state, and within our alumni at Fresno State, it goes up to $21. If we turn take into consideration tax revenues and take into consideration the business you know, uh, innovations that our, that our alumni create. So it is, it is the one you know, very secure investment that the state can do uh, in promoting the greater good and in also elevating the quality of life for all of its citizens. So, Connecting that then to the high school student who is saying, I can't afford college, we are always going to be able to offer you the possibility of gaining you know, a college experience and also earning your degree so that you are able then to be you know, in a higher income bracket with a college degree. Um, we're always going to be able to help you financially make it through the way. I can remember being, you know, a senior at Fowler High School, you know, 1989 and thinking, how am I going to do this? You know, my parents can only afford so much and I can only work so much. How's it going to happen, you know, in the future? But I think the greater conversation should be, what are we as a society, what are we as a society going to do in order to invest in the future of our communities? And the future of our communities is tightly connected, interwovenly connected to the empowering of our students uh, through higher education as well. Once a student gains higher education, earns a higher education degree, they become an instant leader within their communities. That's it. And of course, you know, once they go on to the master's and then the doctoral, er the doctoral degrees, they become even a stronger uh, leader within their communities as well. Well, President Saul Jimenez Sandoval, congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, and um, good luck with the, the upcoming school year and go Bulldogs. Go, go Dogs indeed. And <laughs> I'm confident about, uh, about our fall 2021. 
because I know that our students, you know, will return to campus. We'll have this incredible synergy between students, faculty, and staff. And ultimately, once the students graduate, it's a direct, you know, positive impact on our community. So that that really is what drives me all the time. Well, that's that's wonderful to hear. Uh, congratulations again. Good luck, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Crime Writers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud. That's at soundcloud.com slash Groundbreakers, Or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to part two of our episode focusing on higher ed in California. So in the previous part, we talked with the college president about how he sees college life changing. And now we're going to talk to college students about how they see life back on campus post-pandemic. And we'll see how their views compare and contrast with those of the new head of Fresno State. So joining me now are Stephen Kador, who just graduated from Reedley College. That's 30 minutes south of Fresno. He just received his fourth associate degree. Uh, the most recent is in communications and political science. But getting to that point was a journey, and we'll discuss that a little later. But congratulations on graduation, Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> and then also we have Josh Lewis. He will be a senior at UC Berkeley later on this year. He is a native of Amador County, and he is studying political science and public policy. So thanks, Josh, for coming on, too. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Now, I should say these two are not just your run-of-the-mill college students. They hold top spots in some pretty influential student organizations. Stephen is president of the Student Senate for California Community Colleges, and he speaks up for students who are facing the same challenges he has overcome in his time as a community college student. And Josh is chair of government relations for the UC Student Association, so I'm assuming he he and Stephen both track what's happening at the state capitol, and they're keeping an eye on the governor's budget plans right now and what college-focused bills uh, legislators are moving through the process right now. So I'm, I'm assuming we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But the first question I wanted to ask you both is I wanted you to set up a kind of a visual framework for us about what life was like as a college student in the spring semester of 2020 and the fall, spring of 2020, 2021. Was there some moment, some sentence, some visual, whatever that just you, it came across you and you said, yes, that sums up life as a college student right now for better or for worse. So I just wanted to see, you know, what that image or moment or whatever in time just marked that the past year of college, uh, being a college student for you, who would like to, to share their experience first? Josh. Yeah, sure. I can jump in. Uh, so I, uh, one of the, the hats I wear, I serve as a, a senior resident assistant at UC Berkeley and in that capacity, you know, get to interact with a lot of students. And I remember uh, there was one day I went to knock on one of my residents' doors. They were very clearly having a party, very clearly doing things they weren't supposed to. And I opened the door and I say, hey, you're not supposed to be doing these things. And he goes, Josh, I spend my day in a 10 by 10 Zoom hell. And I think that that kind of just summarizes the entire yearly experience, uh, you know, waking 
up, rolling out of bed five minutes before a lecture started, sitting on Zoom for eight hours in, you know, the same concrete dorm room, you know, five days a week was definitely the uh, trademark college experience that we got this year. So. Um, hopefully that was a, a little bit of an illustration of our time at Berkeley, at least. That is perfect. A 10 by 10 Zoom hell. I, I think that's that's pretty sad. Stephen, what about you? Yeah, I think um, I, I don't have such a great story as Josh, but I, for me, I one of the hats that I wore in the spring semester of 2020, I was the um, student trustee. So I was the, uh, the student that sat on the board of trustees for, for my district. And coming up to, um, you know, COVID, they had to do a special meeting. Um, and the special meeting was to determine, are we going online? Like, are we, you know, halting all stuff uh, on campus? And literally this, this meeting room, normally in a, in a regular, uh, uh, a regular meeting, you'd have about, you know, 40 or so people, there were hundreds of people that were packing into this Zoom room, I mean, into this, uh, into this meeting room, to, to discuss whether or not we should, you know, halt all of our stuff. And the just this the the signs of disarray. Everyone was so confused on what was going on. Why are we going to stop this? It hasn't even hit us yet. Like we shouldn't even be scared about this. But I think that just kind of signaled to the to the students, like, uh oh, like it stuff's about to get crazy, right? And and I think that that like seeing all of that kind of take place was just like the start of of craziness for, for, um, you know, the student experience. And that was, was that the last time you were in a room with that many people since then? Yes, it was. Wow. That, that yes, was back was. in the day. And I was, yeah. And I was set as a student trustee to take off to Washington DC, like two days later. And because we decided to go online, they canceled my trip. And it was just a, a, a snowball effect from there that just turned into a huge avalanche of these things, you know, as a student, you were no longer allowed to do. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Snowball effect turning into an avalanche. I think those are great terms. Um, so talking about virtual, I wanted to ask you both about virtual learning, because I'm assuming you did most, if not all, of your past year and a half of classes uh, online. And I was wondering if it was a Zoom hell, uh, or were there any pros um, or advantages about it, uh, especially now as you know we're looking at a new school year, and um, virtual may still be part of the education process. What's your advice for educators, administrators who are looking at how much of a role virtual learning should play and your advice for using virtual learning versus face-to-face, -face, you know, based on your own experiences, what advice do you have? Uh, Stephen, I'm gonna start with you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, this transition to online learning was definitely a blessing and a curse um, for some people, right? You know, not all students can can actually thrive in a virtual environment. I'm one of those students. I I, I need the face to face. You know, I'm a, I'm a very outgoing person, and I, I need that. Um, but I also have two jobs. Um, you know, I have a family, um, and and the transition to online learning actually kind of helped me because I was able to, you know, do work at my own pace. And I think for um, a lot of students, that's that's kind of what what happened. Um, you know, a lot of students needed that virtual um, experience because you know we're we're fighting for this thing in in community college right now, like an online pathway to a degree, so that someone can come in and take a whole pathway, a whole uh, you know associate's degree, and take all of those classes online because a lot of our students are part time students because that's the only way that they can go to school. Um, so, I mean, my my advice to the educators out there is. You know, try and try and learn. Um, you know, we we had to take two weeks off in our district 
um, just to teach the educators how to do online modalities, right? Like how to use Canvas and how to do these things because, you know, a lot of them had never done it before. So I think this is a learning experience for everybody. You know, they, they said, oh, well, the students are professional learners. They'll, they'll adapt. Well, the educators need to adapt also, right? So the educators need to adapt to be able to um, present the, you know, the best uh, type of um, learning environment for those students. So um, it was definitely a blessing and a curse. You know, it exposed a lot of things to, to some students and some of the inequities there. But I think for also for some students, it, it was, um, you know, a a benefit because now they can actually, um, you know, take it at their own pace and, and do stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah, Josh, what did you experience and what's your advice on virtual learning? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Stephen said. I think that, um, you know, there were some pretty significant disadvantages that obviously made themselves very visible. Uh, you know, the inability of some students to, uh, you know, take virtual classes in a way that allowed them to retain information was something that was, you know, rampant. Um, you know, personally, I, I struggled a lot similarly to Stephen, you know, sitting in front of a computer, it's, it's hard to pay attention, let alone once you're paying attention, retain anything that you're hearing. But I mean, on, on a broader policy scope, though, I, I think we have to, you know, identify that, that virtual learning has very real advantages for um, especially disadvantaged communities at our institutions. Things like asynchronous instruction are made possible by lecturers or uh, faculty pre-recording lectures and making those available to students. Uh, you know, the uh, ability of students to take classes from different time zones means that education is inherently becoming more accessible. Uh, so, I mean, so I think, you know, one piece of advice that I'd give to educators is embrace that uh, aspect of virtual learning, embrace the flexibility, embrace the um, kind of equity bridging that it can bring. Um, but, you know, on, on the flip side of that, I think that uh, educators should also be embracing a lot of these challenges that virtual learning brought, you know, things like broadband connectivity, um, were, were made incredibly visible by the fact that everyone was on Zoom all day. And, um, you know, our educators are, are so frequently some of our fiercest advocates uh, in all levels of education. And I really think that uh, something amazing that I would just, you know, want to hype up and encourage as much as possible is uh, those legislators staying on the forefront of this and, and, and really, you know, combating the negatives that have come with virtual learning and really embracing those positives and, and taking us forward in a more flexible, equitable way. I have a few questions for you about uh, financial issues, and I guess the cost of getting a degree um, during a time when you are not on campus and when you are doing virtual learning. I, I felt like I was reading so many articles nationwide about uh, students and their parents asking, why are you still charging us, you know, full freight or nearly um, when we're not on campus? And I, I didn't, I didn't really keep track of how much, or if, if at all, UCs were cutting um, the tuition for the past year, or um, you know, withdrawing, you know, sending back fees or what have you. But it did seem like it. There was still some, a lot of dissatisfaction about I'm spending all this money um, for college in general, and now especially this year, I, I just feel like the the the, the value of a, a diploma is a little, it's it's different, and it's not the same. Going forward, I'm wondering again, you know, for you have been in this and what is what is the value of a college education now going forward since things had changed? And what are your thoughts about pricing uh, for uh, college and getting a, a, a degree? Has it has it um, changed in any way in the past, you know, 14 months since the pandemic started? And Josh, I'm going to start with you on this one. Sure. Um, 
No, I mean, so it's, it's a really difficult question, I think, in, in a couple of ways, right? The easy impulse, and I'd say the really accurate impulse, is that obviously the sticker value of education is too high when everything's being conducted from the same, you know, 10 by 10 Zoom hell, not to return to that. But, um, you know, I mean, at the same time, I think there has to be an awareness that a lot of what we're paying for in college is not something that's benefiting us anyway, directly, um, or, or indirectly benefiting us. I, I, I should, would probably be the better way of describing it. Um, UC Berkeley, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved in our campus student advocacy spaces there. And uh, a big conversation we were having right at the start of the pandemic was why we weren't canceling student fees, not, not tuition, but the things that are specifically relevant to on-campus um, life and on-campus services, things like the gym or, um, you know, residential access to, to dorms that were closed. And, um, you know, the answer that we got from repeatedly was that, uh, you know, a, a lot of these fees are going towards A, paying down debt. On, on buildings and, and capital improvements that were made and be paying people salaries. And I, you know, personally, as, as someone who aligns myself being an ally to labor, it's really hard to make an argument that we should not be paying people salaries, especially as students who tend to have more privilege and access in these institutions. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I, I think that, you know, there is a, a very clear obligation of administrators to try to cut down some of that excess financial bloat that's being um, you know, levied onto students, especially considering the incredible increases in cost of attendance that we've seen in just the past few years, let alone in the just past, let alone just in the past few months, exacerbated by the pandemic. So, um, you know, a, a proactive effort to combat rising costs of attendance, I think, is really where our attention should lie and making sure that we're still, you know, supporting our, you know, community members at UC, at CSU, at Triple C that aren't students. Um, I, I'd say it was kind of kind of the short uh, soapbox that I'd give on it, but yeah. And Stephen, what about you? Yeah, I, I think so. For a community college, um, you know, a student there, you know, you're, you're we have the lowest, you know, tuition cost, right? It's forty six dollars a unit. That's that's not much. Um, you know, it still can be a burden to some, but um, you know, we have our our promise grant, which you can easily you know get free tuition and um, all of these different things. But for us, I mean, the biggest thing is you know, we have what we call the, the biggest true cost of college because all of our out-of-pocket expenses are what's really um, taking the hit for us, right? That's, that's really what's hitting us the hardest because we don't receive financial aid at the, at the level that, you know, UC, uh, UC and CSU students do. Um, so, you know, during times of recession and, and things like that, we usually see an uptick in, um, you know, community college enrollment. And we didn't see that this year. Um, we didn't see that. We actually saw a decline in enrollment for our student. Why, why do you think that is? And to me, I think it's because we don't receive the resources that are necessary to allow our students to, to succeed. You know, we don't, we don't, we aren't, um, you know, giving them the resources that, that can enable them to actually get through their degree pathways. They don't get financial aid like they would at the CSU and the UC system. Um, you know, the, the resources aren't there for, you know, mental health and for, um, you know, food insecurity and stuff at, at a level that the CSU and the UCs have. Um, so I think that that's one of the things. And I think also it's the students saying, why would I go to college right now when things are so different? You know, why can't I just take a year off and then just come back and try and do it all over again? And, and to me, you know, as a, as a student that's gone out of the community college system and back in three different times, it's so much harder to come back. So that's not where we want to have our students, right? Leaving our system because it's going to be that much harder to get them back in. Um, I think that's why there's so much, um, you know, uh, money coming from the budget to try and, um, you know, do outreach for, for getting those students that did leave to come back. Um, because if we don't get them back now, who knows when we might get them back. Um, so, you know, that, <clears throat> I think that's, you know, something to, to definitely 
um, weigh in on. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you uh, a little more about that because, uh, you know, as we talked about in the at the top, you had gotten a few associate degrees, but it took a long time. You are 30 years old right now. You're 30 or so, so you took a few years off. And I, there was a really good article, uh, and you were uh, in a lot of that story, I think last month uh, on Cal Matters about uh, Pell Grants and financial aid for students. And um, I read that even though California's financial aid grant is among the most generous in the country, the Cal grant leaves out hundreds of thousands of students each year who are older and who took more than a year to get to college after finishing high school. And that's a lot of students in California. So I'm assuming, Stephen, you were one of those students. And um, I was wondering, you know, what what you see going on in terms of thoughts and um, proposed and changes to federal federal aid, uh, but also, you know, California uh, student aid, what do you think should be done? What can be done and what should be done? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really great question. You know, um, the, the student associations from all three platforms have kind of joined together into a coalition that we call the Fixed Financial Aid Coalition, because we, we do see a huge need to reform our financial aid system. Um, you know, right now, I'm speaking from the community college perspective, you know, only 5% of our students receive um, a Cal grant. Um, and that's, that's crazy. When, you, we, when we have 2.1 million students, only 5% of those are actually receiving a Cal grant. Um, and a lot of our students, as I said earlier, like myself, are either part-time students or they're adult learners. They're coming back to the system. And right now, there's so many uh, barriers to getting a Cal grant, like time out of college, your age, you know, different things like that, that are, are keeping some of these students that are, you know, trying to come back in and, and get their education, but they're not going to be able to get those resources because of you know, these, these tedious barriers. Um, so we've formed a fixed financial aid coalition to try and um, fix financial aid. It's, uh, we've, we've sponsored legislation, AB 1456, to, to really try and eliminate those barriers um, and, and to, uh, you know, maximize the, the amount of those um, grants to, to get into the hands of students. We also um, have teamed up together to do what we call doubling the Pell Grant because the Pell Grant, um, you know, over the years has not gone up with the rise of, um, you know, inflation and all of these other things that, you know, <clears throat> should have should have adjusted to, you know, what we're receiving as a Pell Grant, but we're getting pennies on a dollar to what was received back in the day. And, you know, you have, uh, um, you know, all of these older heads that are saying, well, when I was in college, I was able to get through. Well, yeah, you also received a lot more resources compared to what we're receiving right now. So, um, you know, that's that's something to, to definitely take a look at. Yeah. And Josh, I want to ask you uh, the same question, too. And also tack on there uh, in terms of uh, bills that are going through uh, the legislature right now and the budget. Uh, Gavin Newsom uh, proposed it. I know they're discussing it right now. What is are there any bills or any um, um, uh, proposals to alleviate financial stress for college students or are they are they lacking? What are you what are you seeing if you're tracking those? Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, first, just as a, a, a fun personal note, Stephen and I, you know, during the peak of, of our advocacy times, probably spent three or four hours a week on calls together, uh, dealing with either fixed financial aid coalition and congregate reform or double the Pell. So um, where we where we met and our relationship started, but uh, you know, I'd say I'd say really those two initiatives are uh, the kind of foundation of student affordability advocacy right now, especially in California. 
like Stephen mentioned, the Fixed Financial Aid Coalition is representative of all students in the state of higher education, uh, which is really powerful and really special, uh, you know, especially given just the fact that we are three different institutions with often three different priority sets. Um, the fact that we're all coming together in favor of AB 1456 is really huge and, and, and really transformative. Um, so that's a bill that we all, you know, stand behind 100%. Uh, and then doubling the Pell Grant, obviously, is a, another critical piece of the financial aid reform ecosystem, you know, bringing different pools of aid together to work for students in a way that makes sense. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's a lot of other conversation that's happening right now that's super important. Um, I'd say generally institutions and the state and federal governments are recognizing that college isn't tuition and textbooks. It's increasingly transportation. It's increasingly rent. It's increasingly, uh, you know, groceries, mental health care. Um, and, and tying all those things together into uh, our understanding of what students should be receiving in terms of financial aid. Um, is, is really something that I'm excited about, and I think something that's progressing uh, really quickly in the state. So you'll, you'll see that reflected in, in the governor's budget allocations for higher education, you know, the $15 million that each uh, uh, institution is receiving um, for basic needs and mental health uh, is really critical. Um, uh, you know, recent investments that the legislature has announced into uh, financial aid reform, expanding the middle class scholarship, expanding uh, competitive Cal grant. Uh, are all investments that are just so important right now to ensuring that the, the price tag of college is, is what it actually is and, and can actually be paid for. So speaking of financial issues, I did want to ask about the economy and job prospects uh, for your you and your peers when you are leaving uh, your final year of college and what the outlook looks like. Uh, because it just seems kind of a tumultuous time uh, economy-wise, and especially if you're a, a new graduate with a degree, it's, it's, it's not the best time to look for a job. I'm just wondering what's the mood uh, with you and your peers about job prospects, and are your, are your respective um, colleges helping, especially now, in getting students um, more set for for better career prospects, or should they be doing more? And if so, what, what what do you think they should be doing if they haven't been doing it yet? Stephen. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can definitely start. Um, so you, I, you, I think you nailed it right there, right? I think as a student, we are feeling a lot more nervous because now we have this degree. But you know, what what does the job market look like for myself? I'm actually an educator, so I'm a PE teacher right now. Um, I recently was actually laid off because I tore my ACL and I can no longer go on campus. And they said, you know what, you have no more, we have no more work for you. Um, if you can't come to campus, there's no more work. So um, my, I, I, I was planning on transferring, but it doesn't look like I'll be able to transfer because I'm not gonna have the resources to be able to put myself through school in the next semester. So it looks like at least for a semester, I'm gonna have to go out and try and find work because if I did go to school, um, especially at the community college, I, I received a uh, emergency grant as a, as a community college student as a part-time student, I got $175. Uh, that doesn't even take care of a one PG&E bill for a month, you know, and I, I got that for a semester. Um, and and the, the thing is, you know, as a part-time student, I don't have part-time needs. I'm, I'm still, you know, having the same needs as a, as a the student next to me. But, you know, trying to enter this, this job market, we don't know exactly what we're going to be able to have. Um, and, you know, the good thing about community colleges, we, we've entered into this thing we call guided pathways, um, and each pathway is now um, linked with a career counselor, um, with a, you know, someone that's going to have the, the ins and outs on internships for that the specific pathway. 
So I know that's definitely going to help the future students, but you know, as as that gets ingrained into the institution, that'll definitely be there to to um, help. But for those students that are graduating now and haven't been able to, you know, really take advantage of that, you know, what is actually out there for us? Where, you know, I guess we're going to find out. And Josh, same question for you. And coming at it too from where you are at a, at UC Berkeley. Um, it does seem also there is that discussion about what colleges should be doing to get students um, jobs, but also what is the balance between focusing on, you know, getting a job and focusing on getting an education? I, I, I wonder if that that's an issue still at Berkeley. And just in general, what are your thoughts about, you know, um, the future outlook for job prospects, uh, what the co what college, what UC should be doing and is doing um, to help you, you know, and your peers get on their feet? Or is it the same, the should and could be? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, so, so what's happening right now? I mean, I, I think there's a very real tonal shift that has happened. I, uh, you know, UC Berkeley in particular has reported more switching of majors in the past two semesters than ever before uh, for the same period, which you know, I mean, a couple of conclusions could be drawn, but I think the pretty clear one is that people aren't focused on their education nearly as much as they're focused on professional development um, and, and trying to overcome this, this you know, pandemic related, like work, a job shortage um, that we're seeing. So, I mean, that, do you know I, what there's, sorry, do you know what they're switching, what they're switching to degree wise? Are you seeing some trends there? No, you know, I'd, I'd be really fascinated, but my hunch would, would be you know, more technical degrees, things like computer science and less social sciences or less, um, you know, things that people want to get their education on and more things that are, are you know, serving as a vocational-esque job training. Uh, that, that would be my, my you know, very clear, uh, I, I think that would be my expectation for the, the trends that we're seeing. But, uh, you know, on the note of if school could be doing more, I mean, I, I think a, the school could always be doing more, but I, I think it's it's a real area where the institutions need to be investing their time and resources right now. Um, you know, especially with um, you know the transition to remote delivery of of everything that's happening on campus, there are things that are getting lost and, and things that are slipping through the cracks. You know, like it used to be, I could walk down Sprawl Plaza in the middle of our campus, and it'd be one of like seven different job fairs within like essentially a city block radius of me at any time, and, and those had real tangible impacts on people. Um, you know, seeking employment after college. And now it's, you know, how are we seeking out this like job education for ourselves? Is it our responsibility to seek it out for ourselves? Or is it the responsibility of the institution to make sure this, these resources are being published and shared with students proactively? You know, I'd say if there's anywhere where that growth is necessary, it's not in, um, you know, holding more of these events, it's just making students aware of them. It's hard to find the right Zoom link that'll, you know, give you a job after college. It's significantly harder than stumbling into a different hall on campus and meeting a recruiter or something along those lines. So absolutely, I think colleges could and should be doing more. So speaking of campus, I, I have a couple more questions. And one is about the campus. Uh, I'm going to start with you, uh, on this question, Josh, since you are going back to campus, but Stephen, I, I want your input too about what should a physical campus of a school look like? The the schools that you attended or are attending right now, what should it offer more of? What should it cut back on? Because it's not, maybe it's not as important now than as it was before in the before times. Um, and then how should it be structured? I, I think I was reading how one upside of uh, the uh, virtual 
uh, setup was that things were more 24-7. It was less, you know, 8 to 5 or 9 to 5, and you didn't have to go to a, an office and be there at 9 a.m. and wait in line to get it. You could get it whenever, and, and students really seemed to like that. So in terms of, like, the physical structure, the, the, the way business, the things operate and run, what would you like to see more of um, on, on college campus? So, you know, I, yeah, I, Josh, yeah. Sorry. I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and I described it as a militant approach to hybrid structures, um, like hybrid between virtual and, and in-person. Uh, you know, one of our big priorities this year has been really pushing for our uh, campuses to install more cameras in their classrooms to record lectures that are being delivered in person. Um, and I really think, you know, kind of expanding that model to the rest of the campus um, um, experience, I, I think, is really critical. Offer students the ability to seek services, attend classes, all of that in person, you know, obviously following COVID safety protocols and things like that. But do as much as we can to make all of those services, all of those in-person activities available through a remote delivery. Um, and, you know, tying into what you said about the 24-7 point, I think that's really, really important. Uh, you know, there were innovations that we saw on campus this year that we were told were impossible two years ago. Things like uh, you know, our, our financial aid desk finally opened an online portal for the first time in 2021. Like that is bizarre to think that we didn't have a financial aid portal available on the internet before that. Um, and we were just told two years ago that that was not something that, that they could feasibly do. So, um, you know, I think it increased reliance on those new innovations that were created during COVID, continuing to push for those innovations to allow, you know, 24 seven access to resources. Um, but also, you know, that, that embrace of like, hybrid structures uh, giving students the choice between the model that's best for them and the model that brings the most equity uh, into their educational experience, I think, is the most important by far. Yeah, it's an interesting point how you can use the pandemic as, as maybe not an excuse, but as like, well, why can't you why can't you get that done? Because the pandemic showed that you could use that more often. Stephen, what about you? What, what would you like to see a, a campus do more of less of and be more like going forward? Yeah, I definitely have to agree with Josh. This whole um, hybrid mentality needs to be ingrained in our institutions moving forward. Um, I, I actually was homeschooled for my freshman, sophomore, and junior year of high school. Um, and the way that I was taught, my parents had, um, my mom hadn't even graduated from high school yet. Um, you know, she, she had, you know, dropped out because she had become pregnant with me. So, I mean, I really couldn't learn from my parents. My dad had no, you know, college um, uh, education at all. So we, we got into this program where they would send me DVDs of a recorded lecture. The, the um, you know, the camera was just in the back of the room. <clears throat> there was a, you know, a, a microphone on the, the professor. They, they spoke their lecture. Students would go to a microphone if they had a question. And that's how I learned for those three years. And yeah, maybe I wasn't able to ask questions as much, you know, in a live um, you know, uh, aspect, but I was able to email them in. And I think that 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 helps a lot of our students if, if we move forward into some sort of, um, you know, if that if that's some sort of the way that we can move forward, because even things like financial aid, like our counseling, like our business department, you know, th this is the first year that we've actually offered a lot of those services online. And it's like, why? Why is that the case? Because right now what we're saying is only if you are a student that can make it to campus, can you offer Can you get these services? You know, only if you are a student that can take this exact time out of your day to be in this classroom, can you take that class? You know, and some of these classes that there was a class that I had to take for a business um, for my business major that was only offered in the spring semester at one specific time slot. And it was like the time slot that I had to work. 
So it was like, am I never going to be able to attain my business degree because I'm missing this one class? You know, so I think moving forward, the 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 mentality has to be able to cater to a lot of these students. Um, and and one of the things that we heard from our students, um, and that's why we're sponsoring legislation AB337 on basic needs centers and basic needs coordinators is, you know, why is it that I have to go to um, a financial aid office to get my financial aid. And then if I want, you know, if I need, um, if I'm food insecure, I have to go to this place. And then if I'm housing insecure, I have to go to this place. And if I need help with books, I have to go to this place. You know, why is it five different touch points that I have to say, hey, I have a need, you know, for students that can be exhausting, that can be humiliating. So um, one of the things that we're trying to do moving forward is, is this um, basic needs center where all of your basic needs can be met by one um, individual department. Um, and be able to, um, you know, really help students get those resources that they need. That's that's all great advice. Um, I, are yeah, I'm I'm I think you you both are really good at what you're doing in terms of uh, advocating for your students. And so this this is my last question for you about you know your path going forward, and you know Stephen, you you graduated. Um, and then Josh, you had just mentioned that you are doing an internship at the Capitol. And I wanted to know what your what you see your paths going forward. And has the pandemic this past, you know, 2020, 2021 changed that path in any way that you didn't think it would have changed you know, before the pandemic? So Josh. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the million dollar question, right? I, I wish I had a definitive answer for what my path was for the next few years, let alone long term, but uh, you know, I think I was I, I was getting to a point, you know, probably February, January of this year, where I was just tired, right? Like, it's it, it's just hard to be um, someone doing advocacy right now. I mean, beside the personal challenges, just we're taking L's left and right um, because of the challenges that everyone's facing. But it, it's demoralizing and it's, it's hard work. Um, but I mean, I, I think the past few months have really kind of illustrated to me that I, I can't give up in advocacy work. And it's something that I really want to stay involved in just because of... Um, you know, a lot of the problems that we're facing. I don't, I don't know how anyone could be quiet right now, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I think more long-term on like a professional level, the pandemic has really shown me that we just don't have answers to things. I, I think when I, um, you know, was picking a major, I, I wanted to, you know, do good work and, and be involved in change-making. Um, but, you know, you can't make change if, if we're not even sure what the situation on the ground is that needs to be changed, if we're not aware of what's happening. So, um, you know, I, I think I've taken a lot more of an interest in research. Um, the rural-urban divide is something I'm super passionate about. You know, growing up in one of the poorest rural areas of the state, one of the most underdeveloped areas. Um, you know, and, and and seeing me and a couple of my friends go to four-year colleges, it's a pretty rare thing. Uh, so I, I think I'm really interested in doing research, uh, potentially seeking a PhD on on higher education policy and how we can, uh, you know, bridge some of these really long historical gaps that we just don't have answers on. Stephen, what about you? Thoughts about your future and pandemic, the post-pandemic future? You know, the, the pandemic really has changed my view on what I wanted to do. So I've I've always been um, an educator. I've I've worked for the Boys and Girls Club, the after-school program, um, a P, as a PE teacher. So I've I've been molding young minds K through 12 for quite some time. Um, this past year, I was able to enroll my mom into community college for the first time. So she's um, getting her community college degree. My um, younger siblings are now of college age. Um, and because of the pandemic, I was able to be in so many different places at one time advocating because of my student experience. 
you know, I've experienced so many barriers. When I came into the community college system, I, I slept on couches. I, you know, used the food pantry. I didn't have technology, all of these different things. So now I'm able to, through Zoom, be able to advocate to eliminate these barriers for some of the students that are coming after me, like my mom, like my little sister, you know, and, and be able to try and affect change. I'm, I'm sitting on a, um, uh, a task force right now that's looking at police reform within our community college systems uh, because of the, you know, the whole calling of, on, on racial equity. Um, and being able to provide my student experience and that being taken, you know, <clears throat> really, you know, being sought after because I am a student and I have experienced these things and being able to utilize that to, to affect change. So um, I'm looking into continuing on um, with advocacy for, you know, community college and with higher education moving forward. Um, this summer, hopefully I'll either do an internship or actually uh, be one of the first hired on staff for, for the student senate. Um, we're, we're hiring on staff coming up in this next um, year and, and trying to really, um, you know, call back and I'm getting resources into the hands of these students. So, um, you know, that's, that's where I'm looking into and, and, you know, transferring within the next year um, after being able to, you know, support myself because, you know, I'm one of those students that needs the resources too. Are you looking to go to a, a, a state or a UC after this? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm calling on the issue of transfer. I, I've been working on AB 928, which is dealing with um, some transfer issues, because um, for myself, I, I applied for a couple UCs and I didn't get in. And to me, it's like, you know, I, I thought I had everything going for me. I'm the president of this you know, organization. I have a great GPA. You know, like, why wouldn't I be able to get in? Yeah. You know, what are the other struggles that students are experiencing like myself? Um, because that there was one specific college that I wanted to go to. I didn't get into that. So I'm, you know, taking a step back and going to reapply in the spring and maybe, you know, readjust and reevaluate my, my application process. But to me, it's like, man, if I thought I had everything going to me, going for me, um, you know, what about a student that maybe not, didn't have it all together, but they're still missing out and now they're not going to be able to transfer in. What, what kind of a deficit does that leave them in? Um, so I'm looking into some of that stuff right now also. And, and I'm planning on applying to UC Davis and to, to Fresno State um, in the spring. Well, Stephen and Josh, I have to say you two are badass college students. Uh, and I'm really impressed as a JEDXer. I, I get very impressed by what you're doing. And I know this will not be the last I hear or uh, read about you two. Um, so congratulations on your efforts. Congratulations on graduating, Stephen. And um Thank you very much for taking the time out of a very busy schedule to sp spending a uh, time in a little Zoom. Hopefully it wasn't Zoom hell with me, but uh, taking the time to talk on Zoom. Yeah, absolutely. Not a Zoom hell at all. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, Episode 11, which was recorded on June 1st and June 2nd of 2021. Thanks to President Saul Jimenez Sandoval of Fresno State, Stephen Codor of Reedley College, and Josh Lewis of UC Berkeley for talking with us. Thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcast worth listening to in these topsy-turvy times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.